Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Our sun is getting brighter. If you could travel back in time to the dawn of the solar system four and a half billion years ago, you'd find a star that was about 30% dimmer than it is now. Over the subsequent eons, it has shone more and more brilliantly, a function of the nuclear fusion process that takes place in the cores of stars like our own. It will continue to do so until the end of its life, roughly 5 billion years from now. But we might have that faint early sun to owe for life's existence. That's next. Imagine you're in a lab where you've synthesized ancient DNA sequences and spliced them into modern bacteria just to see how they'd react. They needed each other, but they didn't want each other. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was like a very complicated relationship unfolding in front of me. This isn't Jurassic Park or some sci-fi movie. I'm Steve Strogatz, and this is The Joy of Why a new podcast from Quantum Magazine that takes you into some of the biggest unanswered mysteries in science and math today, where the knots with three crossings, the type you know from your shoelaces, are just the beginning of a much bigger story. There's one four-crossing knot. There are two five-crossing knots. We've tabulated all the possible knots up to 19 crossings, and there's over 300 million of those knots up to 19 crossings. And unraveling the mysteries of sleep means studying fish, living in caves? We can look at the differences in sleep between each population of cave fish and understand how genetic variation leads to sleep differences. And that's really important because sleep in humans is incredibly variable. Some people need five hours of sleep. Other people need eight hours of sleep. We'll hope to learn more about distant planets and the early universe with the help of the new James Webb Space Telescope. Nature gave us an opportunity to study seven Earth-sized planets all in one system. Just imagine if there were seven Earths in our solar system. And we'll travel back in time to try to figure out how life began on Earth. I think it's one of the lovely ironies of the whole field that the best starting material to build all of the molecules of life turns out to be cyanide. You don't have to be a scientist or a mathematician to wonder why. That's the point. The joy is in asking and trying to understand. I'm a mathematician, and I would love to get closer to answering the big questions, not only in math, but in all of science. How did life begin on Earth? Why do we have to sleep? Why are mathematical knots so hard to untangle? And what can the most powerful telescope ever built tell us about deep space? Join me on The Joy of Why as we explore these questions. We may not have all the answers yet, but I'm pretty sure the curiosity to figure them out is in our DNA. Subscribe to The Joy of Why wherever you get your podcasts. That original faint sun should have led to disaster here on Earth. If our modern Earth were placed under that sun, temperatures would average about negative 7 degrees Celsius. That's too cold for liquid water to flow. Toby Tyrell is an Earth system scientist at the University of Southampton in England. If everything else in the climate system had been the same as it is now, back several billion years ago when life first started on the planet, if everything else had been the same but we'd had this much cooler 
early sun, much fainter early sun, then the planet should have been completely frozen, all the oceans should have been frozen solid all the way through, if you like, and it shouldn't have been possible for life to develop. And yet it did. We know that our planet had liquid water on its surface as early as 4.4 billion years ago, and maybe even earlier, as water vapor condensed out of the atmosphere. Single-celled life seems to have sprung up shortly thereafter, and both the planet's water and its life have persisted, despite a few close calls, to create the relative oasis we inhabit today. If the sun was so faint, how was this possible? The faint young sun paradox, as it's known, has vexed scientists for decades, but recent work has led many researchers to think that we now have a solid hold on the problem. Old ideas have been refined, while new ideas have helped to fill the few remaining gaps in our understanding. One of those new ideas includes an unnervingly close moon that sculpted tidal waves the size of skyscrapers. Scientists have also come to realize that the faint young sun paradox carries important implications not only for Earth, but for our understanding of how life in general might come to be. Did our world, even in its optimal location around a relatively sedate star, manage to produce life by only the slimmest of margins? What might that mean for the prospect of life elsewhere? Benjamin Charnay is a planetary scientist at the Paris Observatory. It's a really fundamental question concerning the habitability of the Earth over all its history. And it's a relatively old issue. From my point of view, what is really fascinating with this problem is that it is connected to many aspects concerning the habitability, so the impact of the climate, the geophysical activity, biological feedbacks. So it's a strong implication concerning the habitability of exoplanets. In exploring the mysteries of the faint young sun problem, we've opened up the history of our world like never before. In doing so, we're discovering that what was once a paradox may in fact reveal the very reason for our existence. In the mid-20th century, scientists started to understand the mechanics that drive the evolution of stars like our sun. Deep in a star's core, hydrogen fuses into helium, producing energy. As the amount of hydrogen decreases, the core shrinks, which in turn boosts the fusion rate. The star gets brighter over time. In 1958, German-American astrophysicist Martin Schwarzschild and British astronomer Fred Hoyle used this knowledge to separately arrive at the same conclusion. When our sun first formed, it must have had only about 70% of the luminosity it has now. Here's James Casting, a geoscientist at Pennsylvania State University. That comes from theoretical models of stellar evolution. And actually, that prediction is really old. The very first models of stellar evolution by Schwarzschild and others predicted that. But in the 1960s, scientists began to find evidence of water on Earth dating back 4 billion years. This appeared to contradict the solar models. Earth should not have been warm enough under the faint young sun to possess liquid water. 
In an effort to solve the discrepancy, one paper in 1965 suggested that either the sun was older than we thought, or the model of our sun's evolution may require some modification to permit higher luminosities. American astronomers Carl Sagan and George Mullen made a more substantial attempt to resolve the paradox in 1972. They performed the first detailed analysis of the faint young sun problem. They suggested that a thicker atmosphere on the early Earth might have been able to trap more heat, keeping the planet warm enough to support liquid water. Here's casting again. They like methane and ammonia, especially ammonia, because ammonia is a good greenhouse gas that absorbs across the spectrum like water vapor does. But various people, including myself, have argued that that doesn't work. So ammonia didn't last long as a potential solution to the paradox. Georg Feulner is a climate researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. It's actually destroyed by solar UV radiation. After the Miller-Urey experiment on producing organic molecules with lightning discharges in a reducing atmosphere, people were just sort of focused on reducing atmospheres, and ammonia seemed a reasonable choice at the time. But somehow people realized later on that this just doesn't work out. In the late 1970s, scientists turned to another greenhouse gas as a possible solution, carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is a lot less problematic because there's a lot of carbon in the Earth system earlier on. So it's actually, you know, a reasonable assumption that you can produce significant amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's part of that long-term inorganic carbon cycle. Um, You know, it's stable in the atmosphere. Casting and his colleagues explored carbon dioxide's possible effects in 1981. And the argument there is that you've always got CO2 going into the atmosphere through volcanism. And if the surface gets too cold, you can't remove CO2 by silicate weathering. So CO2 builds up until you get enough greenhouse effect to melt the ice. And so that's basically the answer to the thing in sun problem, I think. Casting and his colleagues wrote that the resulting greenhouse effect should melt the ice cover in a short period of time, geologically speaking. But evidence for the hypothesis was extremely hard to come by. We can't just grab a sample of the atmosphere from 4 billion years ago. In the absence of geological corroboration, other possibilities emerged. Perhaps high levels of carbon dioxide reduced the amount of reflective low clouds that would have bounced sunlight back into space. Or maybe the sun was more massive in the distant past, counteracting the diminished fusion process in its core. Pete Martins is a professor of physics and astronomy at Georgia State University. If the sun is more massive, just by a few percent, its brightness increases tremendously. It goes to the fifth power or something like that. And you can see that from stellar evolution calculations, and you can also see by looking at other stars that are a little bit more massive than the sun. So if you increase the mass by the sun by 5%, then the sun initially would be just as bright as it is now, and we wouldn't have a faint young sun problem at all. But most researchers view this idea skeptically. Martin says he has an assumption with his theory about what happened. Mass loss initially was very high of the sun, then it decreased to what it is now, either gradually or over the last about three billion years ago. And that keeps the sun at pretty much constant luminosity. 
solves the faint young sun problem. And what's important, it also solves the problem for Mars, because we know now that Mars has had liquid water on its surface for hundreds of millions of years. And the faint young sun problem is even worse for Mars because it only receives half of the solar input that the Earth receives per unit area. So the advantage is you solve both problems at the same time. A solution to the faint young sun problem required a better understanding of Earth's earliest periods. The Hadean Eon, which lasted from 4.6 billion to 4 billion years ago, and the subsequent Archaean Eon that ended 2.5 billion years ago. Scientists needed to find out when water and life first arose and to get a handle on Earth's early atmosphere. At the dawn of the Hadean, an object at least the size of Mars, and perhaps twice as big, barreled into the young proto-Earth. The collision formed the moon and essentially reset the timeline of our planet to zero. It also likely sent temperatures on Earth soaring, with a vast magma ocean encompassing the planet. That magma ocean could have cooled in just a few tens of millions of years, allowing a more recognizable planet to take shape. Evidence for this comes from tiny crystals called zircons. Here's Dustin Trail, an Earth scientist at the University of Rochester. Zircons happen to be the oldest known terrestrial solids on our planet today. So they have ages that extend back to 4.4 billion years, and... If we want to work on a physical material from the first 500 million years of Earth history, that's really what we've got to work with. Trail published work on their properties in 2018. Studying the ratio of different forms of oxygen in some of these zircons shows that they may have interacted with water as far back as 4.38 billion years ago. This points to the presence of liquid water and perhaps oceans on our planet almost immediately after the magma ocean phase. It's remarkable. It effectively tells you that 150 million years after the solar system formed that we may have had a habitable planet. Just 300 million years later, 4.1 billion years ago, some of the first evidence of life appears. In 2015, Beth Ann Bell, a geoscientist at UCLA, and her colleagues found carbon from biological sources inside zircons. So when we took an isotopic measurement on the graphite that was trapped in this zircon, we were seeing something very similar about the average for this biogenic carbon over the geologic record for which we have microfossils, and very distinct from what you would expect from an inorganic source of carbon, say a limestone, something being outgassed from a volcano and then condensed from that and so forth. And so this is why we inferred that potentially these were the remains of organisms that lived at or before 4.1 billion years ago and they got trapped in this crystal. We don't have reliable measurements of atmospheric carbon dioxide from that long ago. But as far back as we can look, we can see that there was a lot of it. In January of 2020, Owen Lamer, a planetary scientist now at NASA's Ames Research Center in California, and colleagues published work analyzing the composition of meteorites from 2.7 billion years ago. They found that as the meteorites passed through our atmosphere, they preserved a record of the atmospheric composition. The researchers showed that it may have been 70% carbon dioxide or more, compared to just 0.04% today. It's quite abundant in the atmosphere at that time. 
adding a bunch of CO2 is certainly in line with keeping the young Earth warm and preventing a giant snowball. Temperatures weren't always so balmy, says Georg Feulner. Even on Earth, the thermostat failed spectacularly. We had at least three global glaciation snowball Earth episodes, one 2.4 billion years ago, so actually right after the Yorkian, and two around 700 million years ago, where the regulation basically failed. As Feulner says, around 2.4 billion years ago, glaciers pushed all the way to the equator. Andreas Pack a geochemist at the University of Göttingen, says they believe at this time they had the first snowball Earth event. He says entire oceans were frozen, probably under several hundred meters of ice. Scientists think it happened when too much carbon dioxide was pulled out of the atmosphere, absorbed by silicate rock on land and on the seafloor in a process called rock weathering, although the exact trigger isn't known. Additional carbon dioxide from volcanoes may have allowed our planet to reverse the process. Then, about 2 billion years ago, the sun became luminous enough, at more than 80% of its current value, to support liquid water. Here's Renu Malhotra, a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona. The sun eventually gets warm enough to provide the insulation that's needed to keep a temperate surface temperature, which it is now. Still, additional snowball Earth events were thought to have happened 700 million and 635 million years ago. But volcanic eruptions may have been the cause of both the beginning and end of each of these periods. Over the past decade, advanced modeling of our planet's carbon cycle has suggested that early in Earth's history, less carbon dioxide may have been needed than researchers once thought. Other factors, like the production of methane by living things, may have helped to boost the greenhouse effect. In November of 2021, Rene Heller of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Germany and colleagues came up with another potential source of heat. Shortly after the moon formed, it was likely 15 times closer to Earth than it is today. The moon's gravity would have had a huge impact, creating enormous tidal waves that towered two kilometers above any magma or liquid water oceans present. It would also have pushed and pulled Earth's interior, generating extreme tidal heating that increased the planet's temperature. That's not enough to solve the faint young sun paradox on its own, but the moon could have given Earth a vital boost over our planet's first 100 million to 300 million years. That could have increased Earth's temperature by several degrees and helped to drive volcanic activity across the surface. Here's Heller. If we include tidal heating, the riddle becomes less severe. So probably atmospheric effects, if they would have contributed another, let's say, six or seven degrees, comparable to what we find for the tidal heating. So even if we are at, let's say, minus one, two, three, four, five degrees, maybe there could have been pockets of liquid water on the early Earth. That is, the poles would have been frozen, and maybe some regions near the equator could have had or exhibited liquid water. But at minus 12 degrees, where we would be after the formation of the Earth without tidal heating, I think the entire Earth would be a global snowball. So tidal heating makes the problem 
somewhat less of a problem, I would say, and it makes it more likely for the atmospheric effects to play a key role and to help, so to say, solve the riddle. Other recent work has suggested the faint young sun may not have been a problem at all, but a savior. Had the sun possessed between 92% and 95% of its present luminosity four and a half billion years ago, Earth might have become too hot. That may have resulted in a steam Earth with water vapor unable to condense out of the atmosphere. Matan Turbay is an astrophysicist at the French National Center for Scientific Research. The insulation that is required for Earth to actually condense the first oceans on Earth is lower than the insulation on Earth today, which means that without the faint young sun, like if the insulation on Earth would have been constant through time, then the Earth would never have been able to actually form its first oceans. And what that means is that the existence of the faint young sun, the fact that the sun was less luminous in the past, the faint young sun may have been a necessity for the habitability of the Earth. Turbay's work, published in October, modeled the early climate of Venus, finding that the planet was never cool enough to support liquid water, even with a fainter sun. If the early sun hadn't been faint, our planet might have shared Venus's fate. Upcoming NASA and European Space Agency missions to Venus may be able to tell us if this idea is correct by looking for signs of ancient water. If they don't find any, perhaps we should be grateful. Here's James Casting again. It's a faint young sun benefit because we, we would have boiled the oceans away if the sun wasn't faint. Mars is trickier. According to new data from NASA's Perseverance rover, Mars appears to have had rivers and lakes on its surface at least 3.7 billion years ago. It's unclear how that would have been possible at its greater distance from the sun. Kirsten Seebach is a planetary scientist at Rice University. She's been a member of the science team for multiple robotic Mars missions, including Perseverance. On Mars, the puzzle is enhanced because Mars is so far from the sun and so cold that ancient Mars would have required twice the greenhouse effect we have on Earth today to have liquid water on the surface. But the geologic record clearly shows us that there was water on the surface of Mars during that time period. And so right now, our best explanations for that are that we have to have had at least a somewhat thicker atmosphere and atmospheric components that interacted with each other in a way to enhance the greenhouse effect. Samples being collected by Perseverance to be returned to Earth in the 2030s could tell us if this was possible. For planets and other solar systems, the faint young sun problem complicates the question of extraterrestrial life. In December of 2020, Tyrell calculated that Earth's continuing habitability is mostly due to chance. He created a computer model of 100,000 planets. Each started out as habitable. 
Then he subjected each planet to 100 simulations of various climate feedback scenarios. For 91% of the planets, not a single simulation kept the planet habitable over geological timescales. Tyrell wrote that Earth's success wasn't an inevitable outcome, but rather was contingent. It could have gone either way. So in order for exoplanets to have the potential to develop life, perhaps they need to have the right ingredients in just the right circumstances, like Earth. We know that life under our faint young sun was possible, and now we might know why. What we're starting to see is just how lucky we may have been in avoiding becoming a permanent snowball Earth or even a steam Earth. Somehow, conditions were just right on our planet, keeping us in this narrow window between being frozen solid and evaporating into oblivion and allowing us to survive, despite a few near misses. Here's Georg Feulner again. There's a huge discussion about the conditions or the requirements for the habitability of planets like the Earth out there, and it's certainly not a given, and even on Earth, you know, things could have gone wrong easily. <laughs> Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jonathan O'Callaghan's full article, A Solution to the Faint Sun Paradox Reveals a Narrow Window for Life, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. <laughs> <laughs>